Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hello, and welcome back to Awareness to Action. Today, we're joined by Misty Harris. Misty is an author, speaker, senior counselor, and ordained minister. Misty will soon graduate with her master's in addiction counseling and will continue working toward her licensure. Misty describes herself as a survivor and an overcomer, as well as a wife, mother, and grandmother. I loved talking with Misty about her path toward healing, her passion for sharing her story with others, and her commitment to continued growth. I felt energized by the conversation, and I think you will too. As a heads up, this episode includes dialogue on substance use, child abuse, sexual assault, gun violence, and overdose. Misty shares her story with honesty and courage, but if you feel it might be best for your own mental wellness to avoid this part of the conversation, you can skip ahead to the 10-minute mark of the episode. All right. Misty, welcome to the Awareness to Action podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited that you're here, and I would love it if you would share your story to get us started. So my story starts off with being abused as a child. My mother married my stepfather. I was abused by him. My mother allowed it. Um, Growing up, I was abused off and on. I had two brothers living in the home. My all the abuse was focused on me. The abuse that I went through at home was not just the typical spankings. I was beat. I was when I went two or three days without food, you know, standing in a corner with no food. Um, one of the typical meals I ate was a cup of peanut butter with a tablespoon of, I mean, a cup of rice with like a tablespoon of butter on um, peanut butter on it. Sandwiches that consisted of like peanut butter, lettuce, and mayonnaise. And it wasn't that we were. I mean, we were poor, but we weren't that poor because my stepfather would eat pork chops and rice and, you know, the whole meal. I was basically used as um, kind of like Cinderella is is how I felt, you know, now that I look back at it. I was the one that did all the chores and was made to work off punishments. Not that there's anything wrong with chores. Uh, growing up, I ended up in eighth grade in foster care due to being um, beat brutally with a rubber hose. I had my arm broken in sixth grade. Just the abuse kept escalating and escalating. I was eventually put into the system as deviant and defiant when, in fact, my, um, how do you want to say, my rebelling, my being disobedient was only a cry for help because of the abuse going on in the home. I ended up being a runaway, ended up getting molested by a friend of my mother's, ended up, that went on, ended up out the system, ended up in domestic violence situations, being in and out of foster care. You know, growing up, I started drinking and diving into alcohol, smoking weed. When I got into these cycles of abuse uh, with these relationships, I ended up diving more into other substances. The abuse was anywhere from physical, mental, mental, financial. I have three children and those all stem from abusive relationships. 
My daughter's father was murdered, shot five times in the chest. My son's father was more verbal than anything verbal and financially abusive. He cheated on me. I ended up in a third marriage. We didn't have any children. And he was more, um, he was mentally abusive, but his was very much controlling to where I didn't even realize it. I ended up having my children taken for five and a half years by their grandmother and father at the age of three and five. That dove me into selling drugs, into using more substances. I dived into selling crack cocaine and using crack. I ended up working as a nurse where I got my opiates and benzos and psychotropics and started diving into other use. Um, ended up overdosing in 2000 while my sons were in the care of their father, to put it nicely. I ended up moving, I think throughout my whole life, I moved anywhere from California to North Carolina up to Baltimore, North Dakota, and Oregon, just running from all my problems, all the abuse, all the, just anything, I, all the trauma I had been through in life, instead of solving it, I moved. It was that fight or flight. I ended up, you know, the flight was me. I didn't fight until the very end. Um, didn't work very much. Um, I was just hustling, you know, selling drugs best way possible. I don't think I actually worked a stable job until my thirties. I worked off and on. I was a nurse tech. I worked, you know, different factories, but no real stable committed job. My whole life consists of trauma and I, it all stemmed honestly from growing up in such an abusive home that I equated and searched for love because I equated the abuse with love because that's all I knew. So negative attention was okay attention. So I was very promiscuous. I slept around a lot, you know, just full of trauma, my entire life full of trauma. And a lot of it I also put on myself after because I didn't know how to end and solve the first, you know, situations that I went through growing up. I wasn't educated on how to end abuse. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that with us because I know that there's a lot more, but we'd be here for, I mean, I could tell (laughs) stories, but we'd be here forever. Well, I'd love for you. I know that your story is a hopeful one. So I'd love for you to talk about some of that work that did happen and that healing that did happen and what you're doing now. So the healing began, I think in my, at the end of my second marriage, when He was very controlling. He wanted me always in the house. There was always these excuses. And I ended up with C. diff and I had cancer, but it was benign. I can't even explain how sick I was. I spent six to eight weeks in the cancer center. And it was like an awakening because when I came out of it, I wanted to change. And I've always wanted to change, but this change was more my kids were getting older and I wanted to go back to school and I wanted a better life. I wanted to move. I wanted to evolve. I wanted to grow. I wanted to change. And I'll tell you right now, it wasn't overnight. It took probably about 10 or so years, but that was the beginning of it. And when I came out of the cancer and was feeling better and doing better, I enrolled in school. I enrolled in college And that there was the end of my relationship because he couldn't handle me being out and about, meeting people, growing, learning. And that was the change of my life was when I started school. It made me realize that 
I did. I, it made me realize I was being controlled. I went on a ride one day with my son. I was taking my son somewhere after this relationship ended. And he said, he wanted to go somewhere. And I said, well, where is that? And he says, we've lived in this town how long? And you don't know where it's at. I was so used to being driven by my husband or, you know, that I didn't know where this tiniest place was. And he said, you don't realize how much he controlled you. And it was just, boom, it was this big wake up moment. It really was. And from there on out, I just started growing. And it took a long time because when you go through abuse, it takes a long time. But that was my aha moment, as you might say. So where I'm at now is after that aha moment, I ended up still in bad relationships and still kept that cycle going. In fact, in between then, unfortunately, I was raped by somebody I thought I was going to date, but I I didn't let it stop me. I ended up with my bachelor's in criminal justice. I was given my associates in criminal justice, concentration in human services. Um, I ended up meeting my husband right before I graduated with my bachelor's and we got married in 2014. He has four children. I have three biological children. Together, we will be on our 18th grandchild next year. Um, I graduate in two weeks with my master's (laughs) in addictions. Um, I have gotten two scholar degrees, published my book in 2017. Yeah, a lot has changed. <laughs> have That's a great a lot job. Of good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy, good. growing, happy. I I think you have to be happy if you have 18 grandbabies. <laughs> that sounds so fun. <laughs> it's a progress. We don't know them all. Um, my children, I know all my grandchildren were learning and growing to, uh, know my husband's that's a whole different story, but we're healing. So it's a process of my husband came with baggage as well. And it's funny cause they say, marry somebody with the same baggage. We have a lot of the same, he was abused as well. So we're healing families at the moment. And it takes a lot of time to break these curses, this, this, uh, the abuse, the cycles. But it's still, a, it's still a pleasant road for the most part. It really is. That's a really hopeful perspective. You um, have to have that. Yeah, yeah, you do. I want to talk more about those cycles of abuse because I know that addressing and breaking those cycles is a huge part of your work. So can you explain... Yeah what that means for our listeners who might not be familiar? So the cycles of abuse, and this is the way I explain it. So they're generational. A lot of times we hear or see abuse in our family and it keeps going because we don't learn any better. It is, um, it becomes the norm. It becomes what's accepted. So my mother was abused by my biological father um, physically and mentally, my mother was, and I I don't know now, but she was verbally abused by my stepfather. And then I was abused by both. And so I continued that abuse and every man that I dated and longed for and was with abused me physically, mentally, financially. And then unfortunately, that goes on into your children and grandchildren, unless you stop it. 
So it's my job to, now that I'm aware of the abuse and I have done it, I have abused my daughter. There are things that I did as a parent that were not right, that I would consider abuse. It's my job now that I'm aware to stop it and break that cycle of abuse so that it doesn't continue going on to my grandchildren so that they don't see it. What does that look like in a community setting? Like, how can we, as a community, address those cycles of abuse? Because I think you're speaking to doing it for yourself and within your own family, which is obviously where it all starts. But is there a place for that in the community? We need to educate. Unfortunately, where I'm at, there's not a lot of places here, but I do a lot of educating. I go into the jails. We have the homeless shelters. We have the women's shelters for abuse. And in counseling as well, when you talk about, you know, I do substance abuse counseling. And when you talk talk to your clients, it's important to do that biopsychosocial to get to know their past, to know you know, people just don't wake up at, at the age of three and go, Ooh, I'm going to be an addict when I grow up. I'm going to have mental health issues. We need to discuss what, how do I say, the domino effect, what caused these issues. And a lot of them stem from abuse. People just don't wake up and want to, some of them are hiding the trauma from childhood abuse, domestic violence. And so you have to educate, educate, educate. And, you know, I grew up, I'm 51. I grew up when what's done in the house stays in the house we didn't speak. So now we have to break that to where people are able to speak, where it's okay, where we break that stigma. It's okay to speak. It's okay to talk about what happened and to get that help. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned stigma because that's so, so strongly (laughs) connected to those cycles of abuse. So I would love for you to speak to, you know, how stigma has played into your own healing and your own breaking of those cycles and then how it plays into your current work. Unfortunately, it's, it's scary to talk about what goes on at home when it's abuse or drugs um, or mental health for that fact. So growing up, you know, I was raised with my grandparents that you don't tell what goes on. Um, They did their best to protect me when they could, but we didn't talk about it outside. We didn't reach for help. So growing up, it was very hard for me because people turned their backs on me when I did scream for help. Of course, I was labeled. I had a teacher who lived next door who had to hear me screaming as I was getting beat. You know, when I went to school and said, hey, I'm being abused or hey, they're hitting me, you know, it was turned on me. So at that point, that's where you shut your mouth. A lot of people don't understand that I had these relationships where they were all fairy tale, beautiful relationships at the beginning, and then they crashed and burned into these abusive relationships. Um, I have one brother who does not speak to me. One of the last things he said was that he was tired of it. So now he doesn't speak to me. Obviously, he's not educated on the cycle of abuse. So it stops us from speaking because it's like, okay, what did I do now? It's all my fault. I can't have another relationship fail. I can't, you know, so it really hinders you in your growth. It really stunts you. I think the best thing to do is to make our clients, make our community aware that it's okay to talk because that stigma can hold you back. 
especially when you talk about also um, addiction. A lot of people thinks, think that and domestic violence are just poor person, poor choices. You know, just stop. Why don't you just leave? I don't know how many times I hear people say, well, why doesn't she just leave that relationship? Or why doesn't he just stop the drugs? It's not that simple. You can't just stop. It's it's not this moral failing. It's not this uh, bad personal choice. There's so many times in those relationships where, where am I going to take three kids? I can't just up and move. Shelters are full. I didn't have family that was always going to take me in. How do you just stop? How do you just end it? That's not okay to say. There's, there's more education that desperately needs to be done in our communities. And that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're doing it right now. I. I, when we first met, you said something to me that I think will stay with me for a long time. And you said that when people ask you, you know, why do you share your story? You say, and correct me if I'm getting this phrasing wrong, but something along the lines of I'll keep sharing mine until you share yours, which I just think is incredible because that's, I mean, you're breaking stigma right now. You're telling your story and you're sharing and that's huge. That makes all the difference in the world, I think. It does. I have a lot of people that ask if I'm ashamed. You know, are you ashamed of your past? Are you ashamed that some of your family, well, most of my family doesn't speak to me, but are you ashamed of that? Are you ashamed that um, you were a drug dealer? You were on crack. You know, I made mistakes. It's not about shame anymore. There's a reason why I went through it. And my reason is not just to help me, but to help other people. When I went into the jail, And that's why I said what I said to you. When I went into the jail, I had one young lady say, why? Why are you doing this? And I said, I am going to speak until you can speak for yourself. Because not enough people are standing up and speaking and telling their stories because we were taught to be ashamed. And that's where the stigma first came from, I feel, is from the shame, the guilt, and the lack of education. And it takes people, not just who read books to learn about it and went to school, but people who've actually been there who can stand up and say that they survived and help others pull them out of the trenches so that they feel strong enough. Because nobody was there for me. And when they were, they weren't there for long. They left really fast. They want you to be healed, (laughs) you know? (laughs) When's your recovery over? When's, you know? When's your mental health okay? So it's not a quick fix. So we need somebody to be there, stand in the gap. And there need, it, it has to keep going. It has to keep being community interventions and support and storytelling and encouragement and right. like real radical care over and over and over again. Because none of, yeah. you know, it's never a, a quick fix, like you just said. I wish it was sometimes, but it's not. <laughs> that would be nice. It would be. (laughs) Yeah. So what does it mean to you, Misty, to be able to show your community that healing can happen and change can happen and to continue to grow and change with your community? You know, you have this healing and progress that's not always been linear to look back on, but it's there's a path forward as well. I think, well, when a lot of people look at me, they see hope. Um, I had a pastor in town um, call me the hope dealer. 
And he said, you went from dope dealer to hope dealer. And I think when people look at me and see that I'm willing to stand up and fight and show change and continue to grow and change, um, they see, I think families going through watching their family members uh, with addictions or in recovery or watching their families stuck in these abusive relationships, I think that they can look at me and see hope and change. It's possible. When I go into the jails, especially when I speak to them, I ask them to take a deep breath. And most of them, they just look kind of funny. And then I say, no, really, please take a deep breath and tell me what that means. And a lot of them are like, well, that's oxygen. Well, that's air. Okay. So every time you take a a breath of fresh air, that is another chance to change. That is another chance to grow. That is another chance for your family to change. So I think my biggest thing is standing there and showing hope. And when people can see me, because I am an open book, literally, when they see me, they can see the person I was to the person I'm growing to be. And I'm very vulnerable. I tell them pretty much everything of my life. So I think that they can look at their family member and say, wow, if she can do that, you can do something too, or I can do something as well. And give them that moment to be brave and just to hope to change. But I have to show them that I'm still a work in progress. I have to. I'm not perfect. I do tell them that, you know, there's still grandkids I haven't met. There's still, um, my daughter and I are still working on a relationship. I have to let them know that and see that because it's not magical. It's not this overnight quick fix. Um, I'm still growing. They have to know that the moment they decide to change, it's not all going to be butterflies and unicorns or else they will not want to do it anymore. That's not realistic. So I have to make that clear to people that just because you decide to sober up now or get out of that abusive relationship or decide to change your life, things aren't going to be sunshine, you know, rainbows and everything right away. You're still going to overcome a lot of hurdles. And that's important. So they have to see me changing. They have to hear that side of the story where, look, I still need to fix this, 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 and this. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think you're speaking to a really important concept of not falling into like this or that thinking, you know, it's, you can be proud of how far you've come and acknowledge that you have progress to make or, you know, what I heard you saying earlier, you can love your community so much and also recognize that it needs more. There need to be more resources and more education. There's, you know, parts of it are lacking. It's, it's okay to say, I love this place and I want it to be better. I love me and I want me to be better. I think that's really important. Yeah. It's a lot of work, (laughs) but it's worth it. I, I love everybody that walks in the door. When I talk to my clients, I tell them they're brave. The first step you did was walk through that door. That's a huge step to walk through that door. That's brave, but I want them to know that I was them at one time. Maybe not to that extent or that level or whatever, because we all are different, but I was them. You have to make it personal. To say, hey, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a powerful statement. So for, so you are a person who has chosen a line of work based on your life experiences. And I'm wondering if you can touch on what has been important to your professional development or what you would recommend to someone who 
is using their life experiences to guide the work they want to do in the future? So using your life to guide it. First off, life experience is amazing. However, you have to be, you have to go to school. It's very important to learn not just the life experiences you have, but learn the different behaviors, where they stem from. I have learned so much in college that I encourage others to go, and it's not for everybody. However, to see the picture 100%, it's important, especially in my field. Another is, we know my my life is a book um, and about to be more, but self-disclosure is also very important. When I talk to a lot of the clients that that know I have a book out, I say, this is not about me. This is about you. Um, That's important because they don't want this, uh, what would you call local celebrity, maybe, you know, you don't want them to get wrapped up in that. This is not about me. This is, this is their recovery. Um, Another very important point is self-care. With me, it's very hard sometimes to talk about my story. Sometimes I'm great. Sometimes I am the most level-headed person you would get to speak. But other times, if I'm tired, if it's been a long day, there are triggers, there are stressors that make it harder. Self-care is very important to me. I work out. Um, I will come home and there's times when I have to tell my husband, I just got a shower, take my work off of me. It's that self-care is so critical to what I do. And I've had to learn that. I've had to learn to say no. That is also very important because if I don't take care of me, then there's no way I'm going to be able to help take care of my community or be on my job. And those I think are the most, I think those are the three most important things. Yeah. I, I know how much self-care matters and I'm always amazed still by (laughs) how much of a difference it makes both ways, whether I'm doing a great job with it or not, I'm always impressed by how (laughs) great or how bad I feel based on how that care has been implemented. Yep. But that's exciting too, to figure out what works for you and, and what you need and what is truly most beneficial. I think. I had to learn self-care because at first when I really, when I published my book and everything, I was just gung-ho. I was ready to run that marathon, but I kept tiring and everybody kept saying self-care, self-care. And I was like, no, I got this. I got this. I'm fine. And then I would crash and burn. And then I realized, okay, reel it in. There's a time and a place and you can't say yes to everybody because it'll wear you thin. It'll wear you really thin. And then you're not helping anybody, including yourself. So you have figured out what it means to use your life experiences to pursue work that you care about. And I'm wondering what comes next. You're about to get your master's. What does the future look like for your work? So right now I work at the treatment center and I'm a senior counselor. I do have my trainee QMHP, which is the mental health. I have my CSAC-A. I am hoping that after I graduate in two weeks, I will get signed off so I can take the CSAC exam. Um, then I have five classes to take and I will do the, take the exam for the licensed substance abuse practitioner. No, LSAT, LSATP. 
Yeah, practitioner. I was trying to think of what it was. <laughs> All these acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm just nervous to test because I'm not a test taker. I can write a book. <laughs> I can write papers. You can just submit your book and, and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, here. Can we just take this? <laughs> I am nervous about the exams. I really am, but whatever. I've done I've done pretty well. I've got all A's and B's. You know, you're allowed one C and I didn't get it. <laughs> you're making it. You're so close. That's so awesome, Misty. I'm excited. It's really, really cool. So I want to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Awareness to action. I had to ask you that, about that, but I, I, that question really made me think. Awareness to action is my life. It is, to me, becoming aware of what I needed to change, growing, and then helping others. So it is a stairway. You know, I, I went through a lot of trauma. I went through a lot of abuse. I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done. But once I became aware of them and I started to grow and then put it into action to where I'm helping my community know where they can grow and change and what to learn. And I'm still in that, I'm at that action. <laughs> but yet I'm still at the change too, you know? I really like that. Well, I think that's, the beauty of it is that it's uh it goes on forever i think <laughs> that process it does i saw it as a stairway mm. like I it like just that. growth just continue growing once you're aware you can do nothing but change and and change in action you know just keep on hopping over each other mm -hmm. i just i don't know i really like that that meant i actually thought about that most of the day at work after i asked it to you <laughs> Because yeah. I was like, wow, others need to know about this. Just those few words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we uh, we chose that name, you know, before we really even, before we knew what this would be. And I love the concept because everybody has a different answer and everyone's answer is equally hopeful. Yeah, I, that. I saw the words, when you said awareness to action, I saw awareness change, action. You know, there was no two there. I saw change in there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so clear, Misty, that you have found such fulfillment in the work that you're doing. And I think it's really powerful the way that you share your story as an open book. Um, and I'm grateful that you are here today to share it with us. And I'm Thank you. excited for all of our listeners to, to get to hear what awareness to action means to you. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Misty for joining us while in the final weeks of earning a master's degree. That is no small feat. Make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action so you don't miss out on any of the conversations we have coming up.